0: Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. I am Nadia Button. I'm joined with my co-host, Rob Hadley. Rob, uh, tell me what's good.
1: <laughs> Nadia, great to be with you.
0: Rob, I got a question for you.
1: Oh, So you love,
0: you love my, uh, my little quiz some, yeah, quizzes? <laughs> yeah, I get nervous. So yeah. in the U.S., what percent of the population are people living with disabilities? I would
1: say, uh, so these are... Are they people that they know they have a disability?
0: Yeah, so it's and and think it's like kind of according to a place that collects data like the CDC and or like the U.S. Census.
1: Okay, I'll go with uh twenty three percent.
0: Oh, you're pretty close. Twenty six percent. Okay, which is one in four adults have yeah. some um some type of disability or living with disabilities. I also wanted to share two in five adults, age 65 years and older, have a disability. One in four women have a disability Mm -hmm. and two in five non-Hispanic Native Americans, Alaska Natives have a disability.
1: Yeah. And I think that uh, the reason I asked uh, these people that know that they have a disability or have been diagnosed with something is because if you start to think about things like anxiety. Yep. Things that are uh, some sort of neurological or or some sort of disorder or, you know, like something that's, that's very, very, very common. And I think that people now know more than ever that they, that they have something that is anxiety based. Then you start Mm -hmm. to get into, I think that, you know, that 23% number is probably pretty low.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would. I, I'm sorry. That's my, that was my guess. Yeah, that was was your guess. But you're right. I think that there's probably still a lot of people that are either not diagnosed one or um, don't maybe self identify as one. And right. <clears throat> I was doing some reading on many of these like websites the American Associ- uh, Psychology Association, the CDC, um, some of the government, gov- like the EEOC website. It's very interesting to understand either what is defined as a disability or a person living with disabilities and the terms that are used. So I would, um, I'm not gonna go through that right now, but I would encourage our listeners to take a look at some of those websites because it's really uh, revealing information. So joining us today is Molly Levitt, who is the director of Remarkable US, which is um, an accelerator focused on startups, building technology that uh, positively impact the lives of people with disabilities. Molly herself is a former teacher, um, a startup founder, uh, marketing director, and currently moonlights as a camper van builder in her free time.
1: Nice. Um,
0: hello, Molly. Welcome to the Inclusive
2: Collective. Thank you. I am very thrilled to be here with you guys.
1: Hello, Molly. It's great to meet you. Super excited to meet you. Welcome.
2: Nice meeting you around. As we get
1: started, can you just just start by telling us about Remarkable? Tell us what is unique about that type of program, and then maybe even why is there a need for that type of program?
2: Yeah, so Remarkable is an accelerator, as Nadia mentioned, that's focused on the disability space. It is funded by the Cerebral Palsy Alliance and the Cerebral Palsy Alliance Research Foundation. Um, one of those is Australia-based. We have an accelerator in Australia that's been running for about six years, but we're building one here in the US as well. And so there's a lot of a lot of accelerators out there in the world. I have been lucky or unlucky enough at times to be in. <laughs> three of them um, through my work when I was running my startup back a few years ago. And I think that choosing your accelerator is really a difficult task and making sure it's the right choice for you is really important. And for us at Remarkable, it's really focused on inclusion and building inclusive products and building products that have a direct impact on people with disabilities. That is kind of our category of how we select companies to come in, but it also kind of helps people self-select out of, hey, this is not the type of company I want to build. This is not the type of impact that I want to have. You know, maybe I want to go to more of a consumer-based accelerator. But in terms of why people would come to Remarkable, like, impact is at the core of what we do. But it can't be overshadowed by the fact that we are an accelerator. And accelerators are um, organizations that help launch businesses that will be, we believe, successful. So there Mm -hmm. also needs to be a business case for the good impact that you're doing. Got it.
0: Um, so Molly, we invited you on today, one, because you have not only the experience um, kind of directing and running um, accelerator programs, you said that you also have been part of it. You were a founder of your own company. Can you give us a little bit more kind of insight into your background, like your experience, your, your um, expertise? What was your startup um, tailored around and kind of this journey that you have had yourself?
2: So it's really funny to look back on how I got into the startup world. I was a teacher. I had done my undergrad in education, my master's in education. I thought I would be a teacher forever. Um, I built some technology for my classroom while I was teaching. And that you know started being used by other teachers and folks in the school started using it. And I was out on uh, Meet the Parents night with the guy that I had been seeing when I was 25. And I was meeting his parents for the first time and I was telling his dad what I do. And he was like, oh, sounds like you're running a startup. And, you know, I wanted to look cool. So (laughs) I was like, yeah, you could say that I might I might be running a startup. And I went home that night and I Googled what is a startup? And I have been, you know, I was like, wow, there's this like whole world. And this is like, you know, 10 years ago when I jumped into this, maybe a little more. So it wasn't like. It is now where everybody right. is like, oh, startup, startup, startup. But do you yeah, do? Everyone knows
0: the lingo now. Exactly. Like, and years and ago, right. And
2: even so, I'm not sure it's like, like when you access any new community, there's always a language, right? There's like, even if it's an English to English translation, there's always a language to the way that community talks. And mm-hmm. so when I started getting involved in the startup scene, I started just going to events and like writing down angel investor, like you know, term sheet, all of these things that I was like, wow, I really, truly have no idea what they're talking about. Like they could just be speaking French for all night. I know. Right. Mm. And so my journey as a startup founder really came from like language learning. You know, I was like, Mm. I'm already doing this, but I can't access the community yet because I don't speak the language of that community. And that was the first step into entrepreneurship. And so As I have grown in my career and I went on to run that startup for four years, we went through three accelerators, we went through Y Combinator, you know, we've had like arguably, we had arguably some success, but Mm. everything that I've done from that point on has all been about what I used to call like packing your backpack with the things that you might need for what's next. And Mm. so what I mean by that was like when I was getting started, I needed to understand the terms of the access to the community, and so I needed to get those under my belt, and then I needed to get the network right. I needed to figure out who was in my network and how to get there. When my startup ultimately closed, I realized that what I really had needed more of was understanding of marketing. And so mm-hmm. when I went into my next job, I was like, "Hey, I want to work in marketing. I want to be on the marketing team." They were like, "Great!" And they scaled me up, and I eventually became the director of marketing there, and. It, for me, it was always like, "What are these skills I can put in my backpack that, like, mm-hmm. later whenever I start the next thing or when I'm involved in the next opportunity, that that they you can, can be there, yeah. right? And I'm not For- just like starting from scratch again. I'm kind of accessing the community in new ways. Yeah, that's great,
1: Molly. You you talked about the fit between the entrepreneur, the founder, and the accelerator, and that being very important, and one of the things that you think about both as you're inviting." people into your accelerator and then the advice that you give to to entrepreneurs about thinking about the fit that they have with the accelerator. So just tell us, what are the, what's the criteria? What are some of the things that you look for in determining if a relationship is the right fit?
2: Yeah. So for us, there's like a couple just core, you know, table stakes characteristics that a startup has to have coming in. They need to be creating, because we're part of the cerebral palsy, kind of greater community, they need to be solving a problem that's related to cerebral palsy. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily only like mobility startups. Mm-hmm. Cerebral palsy is comorbid with many conditions, blindness, deafness, sure. autism, all sorts of things. And so mm-hmm. really what that means is you fall into the umbrella of a startup with a commitment to making life better for people with disabilities. So that's kind of table stakes. The second part of table stakes for us is because we consider ourselves an accelerator and not necessarily yet an incubator, we are looking for companies that are post-product and post-revenue. So, Mm -hmm. and the revenue is kind of like a question mark, right? Because for some of our products and companies that are going through the current accelerator who are more medical focused, like revenue is actually a lot further off than maybe a consumer product that could just Mm -hmm. start selling and testing and iterating the way you think most Silicon Valley startups are doing, but we expect them to be at a certain point because we take them in and we give them, you know, anywhere from 50 to hundred thousand dollars in funding. We give them mentorship and support and connections to venture capital. And the expectation is that they will be able to leave us and raise a round of either angel or venture capital. That's Mm -hmm. not to exclude. There's like incredible organizations that are focusing on earlier stage helping you go from idea to like the point where you have a product. I think of that more as an incubator, whereas like Mm -hmm. what we're building is more of an accelerator. And we hope that your next move isn't another accelerator. It's actually like building a team and building and scaling. Yeah, exactly. Starting to like really get the business on the ground and running. Exactly. And so the exciting thing that I get to do is we're actually launching our first solely US remarkable cohort going into next year. I'm currently supporting a group of founders that are U.S. based that are going through the Australia program, which for us means a lot of late nights and a lot of like cross time zone challenges. But yep. next year we'll be launching with a full cohort of U.S. companies. Oh, cool. And okay. so one way I hope is that they will listen to the Inclusive Collective podcast. That's and they will right. Say, yes, you you're, you're ha- are here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> we have to be a part of Remarkable U.S. But it's, you know, it's a startup. It's just the same as anything else, which is I'm just meeting the community and I'm talking to as many people as I can. Um, there are other programs here in the US. My friend Diego runs a, a incubator called Together International, where they bring in founders who have who are disabled themselves and are building businesses. So they focus just on founders with disabilities. We focus on both, but we're, you know, focusing on more of the acceleration. There are accelerators around in different parts of the world who are focusing on this, but there aren't enough, frankly, you know, and and the regular accelerators should be taking more companies that focus on inclusion. Like, there's a big shift that needs to happen culturally to understand that, like, inclusion isn't a niche, uh, charity-based thing right inclusion is not charity and i think that's a lot of what we talk about is how do we bring remarkable to the u.s and not have it thought of as a charity accelerator or you know an accelerator that's good for the world but not good for business like inclusion is good should only
0: be like government funded or something like that right oh that's an interesting actually could you speak more to that just from your experience like is that how folks to in the startup world t- or in venture capitalists' world typically
2: view, is, is there a, like a bias there? Absolutely, so when you think about the percentage of people who disclose having disabilities, and I say disclose because no one's really required to disclose unless there are very visual accommodations that you need. Yeah. So when you look at the percentage of people who disclose about being disabled, it's about one-fourth of the population. Yeah. Now, if you look at the way venture capitalists invest, 25% of the population is not a big enough total addressable market for them to feel confident that they're going to get the unicorn return. Now, that to me, first of all, is a little bit wild because 25% yeah, of the population <laughs> is a very large market. And massive. Yeah. Many, many startups who don't even tap that who do wildly well. Wild. Yeah. But it's it's a bias. And I think there's been a lot of history around ableism that prevents people with disabilities from having upward mobility. Like most people with disabilities have to live under a certain income level to be able to keep their benefits. Like Mm -hmm. they can't marry. Like there's still so many things that keep people from being able to access higher levels of mobility and higher levels of income. And there Mm -hmm. are still roles that are in some states that allow people with intellectual disabilities to be paid less than minimum wage. Like there's uh, still so many unacceptable inequities yeah. and inequities that are happening in this population. So on top of it, only being 25% of the population that's disclosed that they have a disability, there's even less like income availability. And so VCs then look at that as well. And they say, well, not only is it small, but the purchasing power is small. Right. And so we know that that, is systematic we know that that is done by a system and the only way out of that system is to raise up people in that community and include them mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yep. going to be work for the folks that you know we're connected with to help vcs understand hey this is investable building from inclusion from the outset increases your total addressable market when you think about right. like how many people actually can't access a lot of things right now just in regular products, mm-hmm. like you could be increasing the number of people that could access it, like even in just the your market consumer, you're working Yeah, in, right? your consumer like, base. When you, you don't need, need to go now, internationally to like yeah. do all this. You can actually right. increase your substantially, substantially increase your customer base here. And so I do think it's a challenge that we will have. And I know that they've had in Australia is to say, hey, this is actually really investable and this matters. And Gen Z is disclosing at a much higher rate than anyone else has traditionally. You know, employers are going to have to catch up. They're going to have to figure out how to create accommodations, create workplaces that are inclusive, create products that are inclusive, or they're not going to get top talent anymore. Like, yeah, people don't want to work at a business that doesn't look at humans as variable and complex and as frankly humans. So the other piece I think around the VC side is perhaps like a lack of deep understanding of the history of how the products that we see fully integrated into society right now are actually built on the back of accommodations for people with disabilities. And so... I mean we're we're kind of doing it right now, right? Like audio, mm-hmm. audiobooks, um Apple CarPlay, text to speech. These were all actually built on accommodations that people who couldn't access written text needed. And now it's a billion dollar market, like Audible, Spotify, like all these organizations that are building around audio as a medium of how people interact with the world are huge, huge markets, and they are built on the backs of accommodations, like the fact that you could hear GPS talk to you while you're driving, right? like that's built on the back of accommodation of somebody who wanted to navigate a city but couldn't read a map because they were blind and low vision, right? So that's an important thing to note. What's interesting that is it relates to some of the products that we have in the current Remarkable Cohort. We have a company called WearWorks. They're based out of New York. They make a band um, and an app that helps you navigate through cities through vibration. Mm. And so this whole field, which is called haptics, is something that I think is really interesting when you think about, hey, where's the where's the future of the next unicorn, which I hate that term, but whippers. Mm. Where's the next unicorn living in terms of something that's built on the back of an accommodation, right? So haptics in many ways have been used for a long time to help people who need other ways and other senses to interact with the world. Mm -hmm. They are now going to become potentially like the next avenue of how we monetize our senses for Oh, you know lack of a better way of thinking about it right you know you can you can see things you can hear things and now you can figure out how to build technology around how touch and vibration help you interact with the world right and so all of these are actually built because people needed accommodations huh. and now when you look as an investor investors are like oh haptics are really interesting well, yes, but... And yeah, <laughs> yeah a yes, service and,
0: for people right, who yeah, are who and think, typically excluded as part of the conversation.
2: Exactly. And so this company, WearWorks, they were um, engineers and like haptics researchers, and they actually didn't intend to build initially a product for people who are blind and, blind and low vision and also coincidentally a product for people who are deaf and hard of hearing, but what they realized is when a product comes to market and it's, it's often the people who need it, right? It's not a – it's the Advil. They need it. They, they need to take Advil. They need to get around a city. It's the people who need the accommodation who are usually the first adopters mm-hmm. of a product. So they mm-hmm. shifted their thing and said, I don't know if the world is totally ready for, like, navigation through GPS yet. Mm-hmm. But this population would love it right? Mm-hmm. And so they actually started building first, shifting their strategy to build first for people with disabilities. I believe that haptics in five, 10 years is going to be something we all are interacting with. But again, like it's coming on the backs of accommodations for people with disabilities. And I think to answer your point, Rob, like there's a market size problem, but I think there's also just like a, yeah, you got to understand the whole story of
0: mm-hmm.
2: what the technology emerged from and maybe start learning that like if we could go earlier than that and start building technology that's fully inclusive from the outset actually like it wouldn't just be a a disabled you know population that you're building right right right? Right. the the total addressable market is actually like very large
1: well i think i mean that i mean i always think about like you talk about a 25 percent market right yeah but i mean if you're saying okay i'm going to build products for a black consumer. Well, that's a 12 or 13% market, right? So yep. now right, right away, you've cut off a really large, powerful segment of the American economy because you're not willing to uh, go below whatever, your know, 80% threshold or whatever, exactly. right? So, exactly. so you know, there's a lot of examples of, of that where it, it doesn't quite work. Um, if you, if you're just so focused on the mass market, right? Exactly
2: exactly
1: um and i also agree that unicorns are uh, i'm so tired of hearing about unicorns at this point so what's the one that has the wings what's the, that's the the, like the horse that flies thing? yeah dragon? I, think I think that's i've always been more of a pegasus guy than a unicorn <laughs> yeah. guy, right yeah like, yeah horses with wings okay. i'm in
2: yeah. i yeah, love yeah it. forget about that like pointy thing on the fringe yeah what wings. can yeah, the, what yeah. the horn <laughs> even do
1: does it just just sparkle like there's nothing
2: <laughs> amazing
0: so, um
1: so Molly I do I do want to get back to your accelerator and what's happening what happens on the inside of your accelerator and so mm-hmm. and obviously the experience that you have having been through other accelerators as an entrepreneur yourself so just tell us of the founders founding teams that do well that take advantage of that opportunity what separates those teams from those that maybe don't get everything out of the experience that they're hoping for
2: I think one of the most important things when you think about deciding to do an accelerator is asking yourself, is this the commitment of time that I'm willing to give up in hopes that taking this time and really committing to this program will accelerate my business? well, so,
0: just to, sorry to interrupt you, but how long is a typical program?
2: Yeah. So generally, they're about three to four months. Um, and... Our program expects that you'll spend about a day, not collectively, but about a day in accelerator types of activities. So that's that's a big commitment. And it's not something that you necessarily want to or should take on if it's not what's right for your business. You know, when I was a founder and back in the day, it was very easy because you're in the mud and you're in the weeds and it like every day feels hard and confusing. You don't always know which way to go to look to like external sources of validation to like give you that like dopamine hit to say, okay, we're doing okay. We're doing okay. Like someone has validated us. So that could be a pitch competition. That could be an accelerator, right? Like it could be all of these things. And so I think that if you don't believe that what this accelerator has to offer will accelerate your business, do not spend a day a week committed to this, right? And so what we see are the founders who are maybe really, really busy and really focused on other things, have different priorities for how they want to spend their time and can't actually engage with both the education and the mentorship network in a way and at a time in their business that's effective. Like, it almost becomes frustrating, I imagine, you know, to be Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, I have so much to do and then I have to like engage with this and I wish I could engage more, but I'm feeling this pull to do all these things, right? Your day is only so long and Mm -hmm. you only have so many hours that you can and should commit to work that you need to make sure that an an accelerator and accelerating your business in this form is right for you. Mm -hmm. If it is and you can answer that question and you want to be connected with like an amazing network and you want to engage with speakers who are helping you refine different parts of your business. You know, we talk about how to raise, we talk about marketing, branding, we talk about hiring. Last night we had a great panel on, you know, how to create really good culture at a company. We help you get connected to people who might be your next hire, right? And you, and the community doesn't go away. So you don't just end the accelerator, go to demo day, pitch to investors, and then like hope, hope that that Accelerated you enough. Like we're still going to be there cheering you on, but I also like again acknowledge not everyone should do an accelerator, and that is okay. You still could make an amazing business, and actually might be even more successful by not doing an accelerator than by doing an accelerator.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great, Molly. Um, great pieces of advice there. What so if we do think about you know diversity, equity, inclusion, and any other types of advice that you would. Offered to an
2: entrepreneur um, in the startup space? So I was thinking about this before I came on the podcast, and it reminded me of a story that one of my Harvard professors, Todd Rose, talks about in his book, The End of Average. And his book is really about the concept of like any system that's designed around like the average person is doomed to fail. That's kind of like the thesis. And he talks about in the 1940s, there were like groups of pilots that um, in the Air Force were just crashing. Like at its worst day, I think 17 planes crashed um, and mm-hmm. they couldn't figure out what was going on. They kept saying, oh, pilot error. But like 17 planes crashing in a day, like yeah. probably How many, 17
0: pilots like user error. Yeah, right. Make...
2: Probably not pilot error. And so mm-hmm. they dug a little deeper. And they started investigating the cockpit. And in the cockpit, the way that the aeronautical engineers had designed it was they looked at what's the average, you know, height, weight, distance between shoulders, like distance from eye to ear of the average pilot in the 1920s. And they built the cockpit based on that. But in the 1940s, something about that was no longer working. And Mm -hmm. So what they decided to do is to look in and see, hey, like, what's the new average? Like, what's the new average human? And so they did all the averages of everybody and they came up with a metric. And then they went back to all of the pilots in the program and they saw how many people actually fit within that new average. And it was zero. There was not Mm -hmm. a single pilot that fit with the new average. And so they realized that, hey, We actually need to make planes that can fit any human, not just like a plane that fits an average, but like some of them will crash. And so they went to the aeronautical engineers and they said, like, hey, you got to figure this out. And they did their whole pushback, like, hey, like, no, it's going to take too much time. It's going to be too expensive. Mm -hmm. But the Air Force was like, no, like our pilots can't keep dying. Right. We need Mm -hmm. our pilots. To live, and you will fix yes. this problem. Right, and so actually, it turned out that they figured out how to make it inclusive really quickly. Mm-hmm. They did it pretty cheaply too, right? Mm-hmm. And they did it because the Air Force at the time was unwavering, and they said, "We're not gonna, we're not gonna accept mm-hmm. that it's too hard or it's too expensive to make something inclusive. We are right. going to say, like, people's lives matter." way more than your business timelines or that. And so when I think about like who you can be as an entrepreneur, like in this case, be the Air Force, be the person who as an underrepresented entrepreneur, you know what it feels like to be excluded, right? You you know what it feels like to operate in a world that doesn't fit you. But like (laughs) you, whoever you are, whatever your identity is, doesn't make you the like, only source of inclusion that needs to come next, right? Like we can open the door wider for everybody. And so I encourage entrepreneurs when you're thinking about your business, like hold steadfast to inclusion, like know what it feels to be excluded and don't accept that for other people. Say, no, I'm going to push my team. I'm going to push myself and it might be uncomfortable, but I'm going to make sure that access to my product is at the forefront of what I'm doing and what I'm building, and that's the company and culture that I'm gonna create. Well said. <laughs>
0: <Brilliant>. <laughs> it
2: was like, love that. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah.
1: Thanks so much for that, Molly. <laughs>
2: and yeah,
0: to to our listeners who are looking to seek an accelerator group or support or network, definitely check out Remarkable US. Definitely connect with Molly. Um, Molly, love it. It has. It's been a huge pleasure having you join us today on Inclusive Collective. We can't thank you enough.
2: Um, thank you, Nadia and Rob, so much. I am very, very grateful that you guys are doing this type of work. It's it's needed, and I'm grateful your voice is in the mix.
1: All right, welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Nadia, we just finished our conversation with Molly Levitt of Remarkable U.S. You know, I, I, I learned so much, and I, I realized that I have so much more to learn about the community that she works with, and I think that it's something that is just so vastly underrepresented in the business world. And you know, I think that there's so much more that we can that we can do. And I so I love the program that they have, and um, and and I learned so much just talking to her, and, I, and love to have her back, uh, you know, <laughs> multiple times if we can. But yeah, what what, what did you <laughs> think, Nadia, and, and what did you take away from our conversation with Molly?
0: I totally agree with you. Like the the more we spoke to her and then I reflected about it after, I realized there is there is so much more to learn, particularly about this community or just in general, how the lack of accessibility in the workplace is, right? So when you think of certain things, but it was so great chatting with Molly. Um, she did provide so much great advice and insight to entrepreneurs um, and, and even VCs, right? So like giving us from her own pers- personal perspective, to the insight to um, certain access for products that are designed for people that are living with disabilities um, and kind of what her own experiences have been,
1: yeah, yeah, no, I think that uh you know like i said there there was there's just so much that, that I could take away um, any just reactions to some of the some of the things that you know, the stories that she told or or uh, some of the advice that she gave
0: i lo- what I loved about. I don't know if you remember her talking about her uh, packing her backpack. She right. used this kind of as a metaphor um, for building her skill set. So she rec- what I loved that as an entrepreneur herself and as a founder herself, she recognized that there were certain things or experiences, skill sets that she was missing that she wanted to learn more about and and develop so that she, it made her feel more prepared for being a better entrepreneur, right? Being a better kind of innovator. And those three things that she talked about was like learning the language that's used in the community, the networking, not just within the, the ableism community, but also within the VC, uh, the investor community, and then understanding the understanding of marketing, right? Product development. And so I love that she recognized herself, that as a founder, there's some skills, sets and tools that she was lacking and wanted to kind of build her uh, development around them. And then she also talks about how important it is for employers to consider accessibility, because if you don't, you lose some of your top talent, right? I I mean, I know that Mm. that's like so, I know that that's, we hear that all the time, but I don't think people really realize That, especially with the great resignation, like people have choices and your employees will up and leave if not only are you not providing like the right support or the right um, development opportunities or equity within the system, but they'll leave if you don't have some form of, you know, awareness and accessibility and being able to use certain products or systems that are in place within the workplace. And so I what I thought, just because I went down my own kind of research rabbit hole, was um, on the American Psychological Association website, there's this great handbook or guidebook that I, would, I, I want folks to go to to really kind of look at some terms to avoid some suggested alternative terms and the reasons for it, because language has also evolved. Um, and I just thought that that was a great resource. that that folks can take away right now to really evolve their awareness and learning around um, the community of uh, folks in the ableism community.
1: I love that. That sounds awesome. I'll, I'll, I'll check that out. sounds like a good, good resource for everyone, uh, for our listeners as well. So again, thanks. Thanks so much to Molly Levin of Remarkable U.S. and definitely check them out as well. Uh, Really interesting stuff on their site of the companies that they are working with. Uh, and some of the innovation that they have there as well. So um, thanks again, Nadia.
0: Yes, That's it you. for
1: this week's episode. If you like what you hear, please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear your feedback. And uh, so you can reach us at www.refilion.com and you can find us on Instagram at, at Inclusive Collective Podcast. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilion Media. Thanks for joining. I'm Rob.
0: And I'm Nadia. We'll see you next week.